Hey everyone, this is Chris Vaught, and I'd like to welcome you all to the Pursuit Podcast, where our passion is to inspire and equip you with biblical truths as you pursue after the heart of God. Go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 33, and in a moment we're going to exegete the passage, and uh, we're going to, to gather a truth today through Psalm 33. Before we get there, let me set the stage. We are in a series we're calling Our Code. And what we're doing over the summer is we're looking at 10 biblical principles that we believe should guide the life of every follower of Jesus. We believe there's a biblical principles, non-negotiables for us that ought to guide our life. Now, here's the beautiful thing about it. The church is not an organization, it's an organism. Christ is the head and we are his body. And so, by the principles we live our lives by, then when we gather together like we do here today, and we are the collective body of Christ together, those same principles that should be guarding, guiding your individual life now will guide us as a church. They guide us as a body of believers. Last week, we talked about the um, core value or the code, evangelism matters. If you were here last weekend or you watched online and you remember the tagline, say the tagline with me. Ready? Go. We share Jesus. Let's just do that one more time for everybody else to catch up. Ready? Here we go. We share Jesus. That's what we believe we are to do as followers of Jesus. We share the gospel. Today, we're going to pick up this next code. It should be like just the, the very next piece to who we are. And, and it seems so elementary, and yet it can become so tainted that in some ways it needs to be purified. And so today we want to talk about this very important subject. Today we're going to talk about our worship. We're going to talk about our worship. And in fact, I want you just to write this down. Worship matters, we honor Christ. And in a moment, we will we'll get to your message notes and we'll talk about this. Now, this is why this is important. Every week, we have this gathering right here. Every weekend, we have this gathering where believers can come. You can invite people who don't know Christ. We want, we're gonna share the gospel with them. We wanna encourage people. Maybe you're here today for the first time and you're like checking this out. What's Christianity all about? We're so thankful you're here. Maybe you're watching online for the first time. This is a gathering where we come together, and uh, you may have heard this called, and some of you who have a religious background have probably called uh, uh, services like this just that. This is a worship service. That's why you often hear people say, I'm going to service. I'm going to worship service. Quite frankly, personally, I hate that term, and, and I don't use that term. Uh, in fact, our staff, we use the term experience. This is our worship experience. And you may say, well, that, that's just like, you know, making a big deal out of nothing. Well, it really is. It's just a personal conviction for me because here's what I found in American Christianity. When we think about service, we think about what the church then is doing for us to serve us. And, and once you understand true biblical worship, you will have to come to this conclusion. Our gathering together to worship has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. It's not us that should be worried about what is the service for. It should be us experiencing a moment together of worshiping him. In fact, the, 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 the word worship itself, you can write this little definition down. 
The word worship simply means this. We're casting worth. We're casting worth and whoever the object of is of your worship is the one you are declaring is worthy of your worship and your praise. And so as a Christian, as a follower of God, we declare that God and God alone is the one worthy of all our praise. So when we gather together to worship, it's not about us anymore. Now it's about us casting our worth toward him. So with that in mind, here's what I need to tell you. Every weekend when we gather together, you can sing every song we sing and not worship. <laughs> you can follow along in your Bible. You can take these message notes and fill in the blanks. You can underline and circle key words that I love to have you do when we're reading through a passage and not worship. You can even do what Pastor Jonathan said a moment ago. You can get out your phone and you can text 84321 and give an amount, give a tithe, give an offering to the Lord. You can write a check, put it in the back uh, boxes on the back wall. You can mail it in, whatever you want to do. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. You can give financially to what God is doing here and not worship. Now you say, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought all those things are elements of worship. They are. Or at least they can be. Each of those can be worship, but listen to me. They are not worship in and of themselves. Here's a great definition. It's not going to be on the screen. It's not on your message notes, but you might want to jot this down off to the side. Worship is an attitude that expresses itself in action. Worship is an attitude that expresses itself in some type of action. In fact, I want you to look at this one verse on your message notes. It's Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read this to set the stage before we get to Psalm 33. So Colossians 3, 23, if you were there, say amen. You see it there on your message notes? Let's read it out loud together. Ready? Online campus, you can just jot it down in the, in the comments so everybody knows you're reading it as well. Come on. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Here's what I want you to catch here. That very first word in the verse says, whatever. Say that word with me. Now see, one of the reasons why I love you to say that word is my wife isn't here today. And, and she, she's out of town and, and she's watching online and I just need to tell everyone, this is a forbidden curse word in the vault household. This is what makes my five foot tall wife come out like David against Goliath when these word, this word comes out of my mouth. All right? It's the word whatever. You know, so let's, we're all going to say it in her honor together on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Whatever. whatever. Now, you said it a lot nicer than I usually do. Perhaps that's the problem. But here's what I want you to catch out of the verse. Worship God is not three songs. Worship of God is not a 30-minute sermon. Worship of God is not giving money. Worship isn't driving here to church this morning, giving up an hour of your day, or tuning in online. Worship isn't any of those things, but it could include all of those things. Look at the verse with me again. Read it out loud. Whatever you, next word, circle it. What's the key? Whatever you Here's something you need to know about the Bible. The Bible never tells you exactly what worship looks like. It just tells you what the heart of worship is. It's never about the actual event or action you're doing, 
But when you understand this verse, anything you do, if you're doing it, what's the rest of the verse say? From the heart, and watch this, who's the audience? As unto the Lord and not for, then it becomes worship. Listen, if whatever, whenever you're doing something and you're doing it in the name of the Lord and you're really waiting for the applause of other people, it's no longer worship. They became the object of your worship. And, and, and your, the praise they gave you became the goal of your worship. It's not about others. It's not about keeping people happy. It's not about pleasing or letting people see how holy you are. It is about casting worth unto God. And when you do that, whatever you do becomes worship. Listen, me driving my truck to this church this morning at 7.15 to be here on time, to go through the run through and prepare for you before the services began this morning, these experiences, that was an act of worship as long as I wanted to be here to give God glory and to help you grow in Christ. Had, had I drove my truck here this morning grudgingly and just wanting to go through the motions so I can get my paycheck and keep some of you happy, then it would not have been worship today. I would have just driven my church to work. You see the difference? Whatever you do, if you do it from the heart as unto the Lord, it becomes an act of worship. So this is one of our code values. We want our people to know as a disciple, write this down, worship matters. And here's the goal that I pray for all of us is that we will live a life that honors Christ in everything we do. We honor Christ, and listen, let me say it this way. I believe that honoring Christ is the greatest privilege of a disciple's life. I believe you and I live in our lives in such a way with an attitude that whatever I do, I'm going to do it as unto the Lord. And we do it out of a grateful spirit. It becomes the highest privilege we have this side of heaven. It lets us never forget who we are and where we came from. So you may ask the question, why is worship important? And why is the expression of my worship so important? Well, for that, let's now go to Psalm 33. But now before we read the psalm, and we're going to exegete it in a moment, before we break it down and look at it, here's what I need you to know. You can't understand Psalm 33 in context until you've read Psalm 32. All right, watch this. You can't understand Psalm 33 until you've read Psalm 32. Here's why. Let me show you a little neat little insight when you're reading the scriptures. Take your Bible or whatever you're using and scroll up to Psalm 32 and underneath where it says Psalm 32, there's going to be a little descriptive title. I want you to look at that descriptive title. Here's how it reads in the copy that I carry. It says like this, of David, a mascale. That word mascale is a descriptive term telling us what type of psalm we're about to read. It, it connotates uh, uh, possibly a word of, of wisdom or instruction is about to follow. This is a psalm descriptive with some wisdom and some, and some wise teaching, some instruction that's about to follow. Now scroll down to Psalm 33. Look at where your Bible says Psalm 33. Question, is there a descriptive title underneath that? Does it tell you who wrote the psalm or what type of psalm it is? No. 
The commentator may have put something in there to help you understand the passage. Like mine says, praise to the creator, but that was added. It's in bold letters that was added. That's not in the text. See that? Why does it not have a scale of David or of one of the sons of Korah or someone else associated with that? Here's the reason. Most likely, this is a continual thought from Psalm 32. So in other words, to understand Psalm 33, you have to back up to Psalm 32. Now, when I read that this week and I'm reading the passage and this is where the spirit led me, I was absolutely amazed myself because this wasn't pre-planned to see it this way. I knew I was preaching on worship today, but I hadn't selected the passage. And when I went back and read Psalm 32, the light bulb went off. How many love when a light bulb goes off for you? Let me show you the light bulb here. Psalm 32 is where the word of instruction comes, and it's a mescal about the idea of repentance. In this psalm, he talks about his conviction over his sin. He's saying, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle. They were groaning all day. Your hand was heavy on me. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not conceal my iniquity, and I confess my transgression. This whole psalm is about you and I when we have sin in our life, and we need to confess it to the Lord. And listen to how the psalm begins. It begins this way. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This whole Psalm 32 is about when you and I confess our sin to God. God alone can forgive us of our sin. And what does he give you in exchange when he cleanses you of your sin? He replaces your shame and your guilt with the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. And so you have to understand that Psalm 32 is all about you and I confessing our sin. Last week, we talked about the first core value. The code value was we share Jesus. And we were saying that you and I who have been forgiven have to go share with others how to be forgiven. That's Psalm 32. Then Psalm 33 follows. So here's what I want to show you. The continuation of thought. I'm going to read the last verse of Psalm 32, and then I'm gonna read the first verse of Psalm 33, and I want you to see how it just transfers right together. Ready, here we go. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, you who are upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with a lyre, make music to him with a 10-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him, play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. Did you pick up that it's the same audience? He's writing to the righteous ones. Question, when do you and I, or how do you and I become righteous in the face of God? Because we're all sinners. Can we get an agreement on that one? Look at your neighbor and say, I knew you were welcome here. (laughs) We're all sinners. We've all failed the Lord. We all, we've all missed the mark. That's all it means. How do we become righteous? Look up here. You don't become righteous because of your good works. 
You can't earn your salvation. You can't earn enough good deeds to make you righteous before God. If you could, the fact that God sent his son Jesus to a cross to pay for your sins and mine was a cruel joke God played on his son. If there was any other way for you to be redeemed other than the blood of Jesus Christ, God played a cruel joke on his son, and God doesn't play cruel jokes. Hallelujah. Meaning there is no other way whereby we may be saved other than through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Can you say amen to that? And if you're redeemed today, if you've been forgiven of your sin, it's because at some point in your life, you, like Psalm 32, felt guilty over your sin and you called out in confession to God and God alone has forgiven you and made you righteous. In fact, here's a verse I want you to see. It's there on your scriptures on your, on your message notes, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin, somebody shout, that's Jesus. He's the only man who's ever lived who didn't know sin. He made the one who did not know sin to be what? Sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So in other words, here's what happened. When Jesus went to the cross, your sin and my sin, my children's sin, my grandbaby's sin, the sins of the world were placed on Jesus. Why do you think the sky turned black? Why do you think the earth thundered? Why did the veil in the temple rip from top to bottom? In that moment, the sins of the world were passed down onto him. But by his death on the cross, Jesus paid our sin debt. By rising from the grave, he now promises eternal life to all who call upon his name. And the moment you call upon the name of Jesus, watch this, watch this, watch this. The moment you call on the name of Jesus, your sins passed on to him. You ready for this? His righteousness passes on to you. Amen. This is why Paul could say to the church in Rome that when you and I call upon the name of the Lord, we are saved and we become adopted into the family of God. And this is why we can become sons and daughters of God. We take the very position of Jesus in the eyes of the Father when we call upon the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. And so when you open up to Psalm 33, this is a psalm of worship by those who have been redeemed. Do you see the connection now? Psalm 32, God, I'm a sinner, forgive me of my sin. Psalm 33, stand up, O you righteous ones. For now we have the joy of the Lord. Praise be to the creator. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. How are we righteous? Because of Jesus. And praise from the upright. Listen, when you and I praise God because we've been redeemed by grace, look at, look at the verse. Look at Psalm 33. It is beautiful. It is beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. And so then he says, let's praise the Lord with lyre. Let's make music to him with a 10-string heart. Let's sing a new song to him. What does that mean? It just means a song of refreshing, a, a fresh experience with God. Let me say it this way. How many of you have loved the Lord and asked him to forgive your sin? Only to find out you're not perfect still and you fell down and messed up again. When you did, how many of you had the devil get in your ear and say, huh, you're nothing but a sinner. I thought you were saved. I thought you were a Christian. Look at you. 
You might as well just stay down in the mud and keep going on because you can't live it. Look at you. You're a failure. Anybody heard those voices? The devil is a liar. Please hear me. The devil is a liar. Here's what I need you to see. Lamentations says this to us. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies never end. Shout amen to that. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So here's why we can sing a new song. What that literally means is, is every day you wake up, you can thank God you've got a fresh day with a fresh set of grace waiting for you. Now look at your neighbor and tell him, I, I bet you use up your allotment every day, don't you? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah, I use up mine and my wife some days. Come on, somebody. How many are thankful that the grace of God never runs out? See, that's what this verse is saying. His love never fails, so you never perish. How is it that even with all our failures, we go back and we confess our sins and the refreshing of the Lord comes and he forgives our sins? Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Can I just say this? We should worship God. If for no other reason than we've been made righteous before God, if he never answers another prayer, if you never feel goosebumps in church again, if you never feel the moving of the Holy Spirit, if you've been redeemed, you've got all you need in order to praise him from now throughout all eternity. Because it's one gift that none of us could earn for ourselves. He deserves our worship, amen? So the scripture says we ought to play skillfully. That means with excellence. It means we ought to give God our best. Let me say this to our congregation. God shouldn't be getting our leftovers. Well, I'll give if I have any money left over after we go to the park and to the party Saturday night. That's a leftover. I'll go to church if, you know, I get all my chores done this week. No, that's a leftover. I'll worship if they do the songs I like. Leftover. God doesn't deserve our leftovers. He deserves our very best. So in our church, if you want to park cars, we're going to train you to park cars. If you want to work in the, out in the nursery, we're going to train you how to work in the nursery. If you want to be on this stage, you're going to be trained how to be on this stage. If you want to lead one of our small groups this fall, we're going to teach you how to lead a small group. And it's not because like, oh, that church has got all these huge stipulations. No, we serve an awesome God and everything we say and everything we do should be done as an act of worship to him. So we're going to give God our very best, not our leftovers. Amen? Now, are there other reasons why we should worship him? Absolutely. I mean, we, we shouldn't need any other reason, but the psalm gives us more reasons to worship him. Let me give them to you quickly. Here's the first one. Write this down. We should worship with confidence because of his character. You ought to worship God because of his character. Look at, look at Psalm 33, verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is right. His work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. How many of you can look around the world and just see the love of God everywhere? I've had people tell me, some of you in this room or watching online could agree to this, that even before you came to faith in Christ and gave your heart to Jesus, the unfailing love of God was doing good things in your life. He was touching you and blessing you, and he watched over you, and you're like, I wasn't even following Jesus, and he took care of me. That was the unfailing love of God being poured out on your life. We can worship because he's good. Now, when people question the character of God, it's generally because they've been hurt by the sinfulness of this world. 
Every once in a while, someone will question the character of God and say something like this, if God is good and God is holy, why does he allow so much sin, sorrow, and suffering in this world? Why doesn't he stop it all? This is where good theology is very important for you. This is why you need to study the scriptures and not act in emotion. Because once you study the scriptures, here's what you learn. That this world has been under a curse of sin ever since the Garden of Eden. When mankind, by choice, chose to rebel against God's leadership in their life in the aid of the forbidden fruit. Since that very day, this world's been under a curse of sin, sorrow, and sickness, and death. Let me tell you the good character of God. The good character of God is that he gave our first parents free will, and he gives you free will. He is sovereign, and yet he has the ability to give you free will, and it doesn't mess him up. Isn't that pretty amazing? That's why he's God and we're not. God in his sovereignty has given us the ability to have free will. And in our free will, we choose to have his leadership over our lives or we do not. God in his sovereignty has allowed you to have free will. And because of that, throughout our lives, here's what God has done. From the time sin entered into the world and all of the pain and sorrow, it rains on the just and the unjust. Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And it's just the way it is until Jesus returns. But here's the promise. Here's what God has done. God in the midst of all of this has given us a way of hope, grace, forgiveness, and a promise of a future where evil will no longer exist and is found all in putting your trust in one individual, Jesus Christ, his son. One day Jesus will return. One day Satan will be defeated. And one day all evil will be put behind us and we shall stand before the Lord for all eternity in the presence of God without sin, sickness, or sorrow any longer. Amen? That's the hope of the gospel. So here's what God has done. God has allowed us to continue to live in a world under the curse of sin and give us the free will to choose the escape route. And his name is Jesus. But we don't, get him to, we don't come to Jesus for an escape. We come to Jesus for healing, forgiveness, and deliverance. And when we do, we realize the good character of God. Number two, we worship him out of admiration of his great power. Look with me at Psalm 33, verses six through nine now. The heavens, somebody shout the heavens, were made by the next word, word of the Lord. And all the stars, the breath of his mouth, he gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth, next word, Fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in, next word, all of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. Listen, I want to tell you what the psalmist is doing here. He's reminding us that the God you and I put our trust in, the God of character that we serve, is also the God who is still in control. He has all this power, and by his very words he can speak. I love when you study uh, the creational passages and you see water referenced there. Water is also symbolic as to chaos, and here's what I want you to understand. Out of chaos, God can speak order. He did that when he created the worlds. Out of the chaos he created, he commanded dry land to come up out of the water. He created it by just speaking the word. And today, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand, God is still able to speak, peace be still in the midst of your storms. 
God is still able to speak to you right where you are. God is still all-powerful, and all he has to do is speak, and you can praise and worship him, not only because you've been redeemed and not only because of his good character, but because he has so much power. How many of you remember reading in the Gospels the time where a centurion, a Roman, came to Jesus and said, or sent word to Jesus and said, one of my servants is sick, will you come and heal him? Jesus decided to go, and before he got to the centurion's house, the centurion sent another servant, and the servant said, my master says, don't bother coming to the house. He's a man of authority. You're a man of authority. And my master says he's not worthy for you to come under his roof. If you will just, watch it, watch it, watch it, speak the word, my servant will be healed. And the Bible says Jesus was amazed. Look up here. When your faith amazes Jesus, that's some pretty good faith. Can I get a witness from somebody? He was amazed. He said, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. Jesus just had to speak the word. The boy was healed. This is the God we serve. The verse says we should stand in awe of him. We should fear him out of respect and honor, stand in awe of him. But sometimes we lose the all of God. And our worship gets tainted. And it needs to be purified. Sometimes we forget that worship isn't about you or me. Worship is about God. Worship isn't even for you or me. It's only for him. How many of you have ever been to a petting zoo? Let me see your hands. Online, just go ahead and throw a hand up in the comments. How many has been to a petting zoo? Come on, I know you have. Don't lie to me. We are, <laughs> we've all been, right? And, and here's what happens. You go to a petting zoo, and you stick your hand out. There's a bunch of goats over here. You stick your hand down, and that goat comes running over there to your hand. And some of you have the idea, and you say, oh, that goat loves me. <laughs> Reality check. That goat doesn't love you. That goat loves what he thinks you've got in your hand. See, that goat's been trained to come get the food that you pent 50 cents on in the machine and dipped out in your hand. He's coming to eat the food out of your hand. Stop putting food in your hand. The goat will stop coming. I think we do that with God. See, worship is all about him. When we come together like this, it ought to be our attention and our heart should be to cast worth on him. And sometimes we judge the worship experience by the emotional experience we ourselves receive. Now, don't get me wrong. You, sh you can feel the presence of the Lord. But if that's why you came to worship today, you came for the wrong reason. Let me explain. Some people judge a worship service by how they felt from the experience. And then, uh, so if they enjoyed it, they go out of church going, Woo -hoo -hoo! praise the Lord, that was a great worship service. Wish you could have been there. But then they come to another service and they don't like the music. They didn't like those songs set. Or there was too much haze in the room. Or 
the lights bothered them because they changed the color of the lights too many times or the music volume got too loud or today the bass was turned way down too low or, or um, you know, the room got a little too cold or the room got a little bit hot. And by the way, y'all don't think I've ever heard any of these excuses. Okay, just, just, just question, just ask, just one every week. Anyways, here we go. Um, <clears throat> and you walk out of church going, ah, I didn't get nothing out of worship today. There it is. Did you catch it? I didn't get anything out of worship today. What's wrong with that interpretation? When you have that mentality, you've taken God off of his throne and you sat down in his seat. And you made the worship about what you felt, not about what he felt. Most Sundays when I come in here and I get in my prayer room in the back before I come on stage and I'm back there praying, I generally pray this prayer, Lord, let us collectively put a smile on your face today instead of worrying about you putting a smile on ours. Because I think about this every once in a while. It kind of bothers me. I wonder how many times we gather to worship him and God, God comes and, and, then, and then we come to God, but we don't come to worship God. We come to see what's in his hand for us. If you're only coming to God for what God can give you in return, what does that make us? The goats. And how do you think that makes God feel when all we want is what he's got in his hand. <laughs> Amen. That's not what it's about today. Amen, somebody? Number three, let's look at this one. We can worship God with confidence, or comfort rather. We can have comfort in that he's still in control. Look at Psalm 33, verse 10. I love this. The Lord frustrates. You ready to get excited in Baptist Here you go. The Lord frustrates the counsels of the nations. He torts the plans of people. Here's what I love about that. Right now, the politicians are all gearing up to send their political candidates, and it's about to get crazy again on television and social media. Ah, I hate this time of the year. Come on, somebody. And maybe you're watching the leaders of other nations and they get, sometimes they get on there like they've got all the answers and I'm going to fix all the world's problems. The next time you hear a politician do that, I, I give you permission. Laugh at your screen. <laughs> Laugh at them. Because here's what the psalmist is reminding us. At the end of the day, the Lord's the one that frustrates the counsels of the nations. He can twerk the plans of people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen for his own possession. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. Somebody shout, he still sees? The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes who? Everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. And here, watch this. This is kind of humorous in the passage. He says, a king is not saved by his large army. A warrior will not be rescued by his great strength. He forms the hearts of them all. God forms the hearts of them all. He considers all their works. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by his great power. But look, everybody shout, but look. Online campus, you got to help us with this. Come on, in the house, come on. But look. The Lord keeps his eyes on those who 
fear him, those who stand in awe of him. Those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and keep them alive in famine. Look up here with me. I mentioned a moment ago, the, you know, the political world is about to kick into high gear. You get on the news or on your phone, social media, you're always right now hearing stuff about AI. You don't know if you're chatting with a person or with a computer. Are we all going to be driving electric cars? Nothing against you if you have an electric car. I got a friend here who every, every town we go to, he rents an electric car. He just thinks driving that Tesla is fun. But we, what I'm saying is we don't know about the future, right? We, we hear all this stuff that scares us. One day you're not going to be able to buy gas. What are we going to do about food? Food prices are crazy. $8 a gallon for gas. What are we going to do? Or eight, eight dollars gallon of milk. That's what I meant. $8 for a gallon of milk. Someone told me last night, you know, it's just like, what are we going to do? There's so much craziness in the world and we get so worked up. Here's what I want to say to us. The psalmist is telling us that the God who redeemed us by his grace, the God who still has the power to just speak a word, the God we stand in all of, if we would just focus a little more on him, we wouldn't get so worked up. We don't have to be worked up because we may not know the future. But if we worship God, we worship the one who holds the future in the palm of his hand. I don't know how everything's going to end. I don't know the end of the, uh, uh, how the sequence of events are going to happen even. But I know who's going to stand triumphantly in the end. My God will stand triumphant, and all of us who put our trust in him, we will stand victorious with our Savior. You may not know the future, ladies and gentlemen, but if you worship God, you know the one who holds the future in his hand. You don't have to get worked up. You can worship him with comfort inside your heart. Here's your big takeaway. See, the more we begin to worship him and spend time with him, here's what I'm fully convinced the more we come to know God, the more we'll worship God. And the more we worship God, the more we'll realize he is, say those two words with me, for us. When you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, when you read the Bible, do you ever find yourself amazed at how easily it seemed like they could hear the voice of God? Or how they had such strength to stand before kings and declare God. They could stand against powers and it's almost like they were fearless. And the question has to be asked, were they so much more spiritual than us? The answer is no, they were just human like you and I. So what's the difference? I believe the difference comes down to this. When you look at their world versus our world, they weren't nearly as distracted as we are. The, the folks you read about in the Bible, they didn't have to gather their family together on Sunday nights and plan the entire week in advance just to ask themselves between practice, between work, between running to this rehearsal or this recital, between getting groceries and paying the bills, where are we going to have family dinner? They didn't have to take out their digital phone and hour by hour through the day, put their schedule in there with an alarm attached to each one of them so they didn't forget something they had to get done. Seemed like they had more margin. They weren't bombarded with the world's news and everyone's opinions on every subject matter 24 hours a day dinging their phone. 
I'm just speaking reality here. They had more margin to get along with God, to pray, to meditate, to read the scriptures, to build one another up. You and I can't change the world we live in, but we can change how we face the world we live in. Can I say it that way? Here's what I want to challenge us this week. Find times to get still and remind yourself that he's still God. Because here's what I believe. The more you and I find those few minutes, even Jesus in the height of his ministry knew how to pull away for a few moments and get alone with the Father. Most of the time it was the early hours of the morning. He would pull away on the backside of the mountain to pray and then go do ministry all day. You and I need to find moments. We need to create margin in our schedules just to get along with God, if for no other reason, to be reminded of the God who redeemed us, who has got the power to speak a word, the God who still holds the world in his hand, that we can lift him up in praise. I promise you, your anxiety levels will go down. I promise you, you'll be able to handle situations better. And the more you spend time alone with God, here's what you'll do. You'll be able to hear his voice better and you'll be reminded of this. He is for me. He is for you. Stand with me as we read these final two verses, three verses, 20 through 22. And I want us to read them out loud together. Ready? Online campus, I want you to read them too and then we're gonna pray and be done. I want you to see this. Let's say it. Come on, you ready? We wait For the Lord, he is our help and shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. And then he says a little prayer line. You ready for it? This is going to be our prayer this morning. Let's say it together. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. Can we pray that together, hands lifted up? Father, that's our prayer today, that we will turn our eyes to you, spend some alone time with you today. Father, maybe on the drive home, it may be after lunch, it may be here in the next few moments, we go get a cup of coffee and sit down in the cafe for a minute and just think about you. But Father, let us have those moments where we're reminded of just who you are, how powerful you are, the God we worship, the God we serve. May we thank you for our salvation and may you comfort and console our hearts. Give us the stamina to rise up and declare your name. And remember God, you got all this under control and you're for us. And Father God, I pray you'll use us to be a light and a witness for you and we give you praise in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said,